Welcome back to the podcast, everybody. Uh, we are going to be talking today uh, about some liver conditions. With me, as always, my co-host, Brandon Odo. Hello. And our special guest, uh, who Brandon's going to kind of introduce for us. Yeah, so we are very excited today um, to get into something that I, I think is going to have a lot of value. Rather than just spending all of our time rubbing elbows with guests from critical care, which of course is interesting, but um, I think a lot of us think similarly anyway. Uh, I think it's useful to hear from folks in other specialties who probably know a lot of things that we don't think about all too much, and yet really overlaps with a lot of what we do. So rather than sitting around um, in the ICUs wondering what on earth GI is getting up to, we figured we'd just ask them. So I have here Dr. Elliot Tapper. Um, He's a gastroenterologist and transplant hepatologist, assistant professor of the and director of the cirrhosis program over at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Uh, Dr. Tapper, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, you can tell me in a, a little bit if you are still grateful. Um, what I'm, what I, I'd like to hear about is a consult that you have received while you're covering the GI service. So you get a call about a 46-year-old male, and he was admitted to the ICU essentially for increased confusion. Um, this guy has a history of known alcoholic cirrhosis and previously treated hepatitis C, as well as hypertension, hyperlipidemia, some COPD, essentially coming in for altered mental status. Um, reported about a week of some malaise and just very nonspecific complaints, um, but today particularly was found to be much more confused by his family, and they brought him into the ED. He does have a history of about 40 pack years of smoking cigarettes, and says now he smokes kind of on and off. He does still smoke, uh, drink alcohol. Uh, he says about a pint a day of liquor, um, the last the day before admission. He lives with his family, um, works sort of sporadically in construction. His meds include uh, lactulose, um, supposed to take 30 milliliters three times a day, as well as Rifaxman, 550 twice a day. He has some inhalers for his COPD, he takes lisinopril, and he's supposed to be on a Tenolol 50 a day. He says he's generally compliant with all of this, although he um, waffles a little bit about the lactulose. Um, before we get any farther, just one side question. Which of these patients with hepatic encephalopathy should be taking lactulose versus rifaximin versus both? Is there some rhyme or reason to this? Uh, I mean, that's a that's a very good question. The Basically, we are giving patients with hepatic encephalopathy lactulose. That's the first line treatment. And the definition of hepatic encephalopathy is super important because if you come into the hospital with frank altered mental status, then you are definitely someone that must be on lactulose and you have to be very careful to make sure that they're taking it appropriately. And then sometimes in my clinic, I'll see someone who's telling me they don't feel so good. They're not, they're not sleeping as well. Their quality of life is poor. And I begin to suspect an earlier stage of hepatic encephalopathy. And I might start lactulose and I would ask them how they're doing afterwards. The first line treatment will always be lactulose. Now the FDA has approved rifaximin for secondary prevention of episodes of encephalopathy on lactulose. And so that's the, what the labeling says, and that's often what insurers will cover if they 
ever do cover it. So you're adding it on to someone who had a breakthrough episode. But in general, the practice of most people in referral centers is that if your encephalopathy was bad enough that it landed you in the hospital, you're going to probably be started on Rifaximin at that time. Okay. So real quick, if I could just jump in. Um, When you talk about lactulus for hepatic encephalopathy, is this based on specific lab data or like in my experience, I've seen this given with people with chronically high ammonia um, causing their encephalopathy. But is that is this based on their ammonia levels or is this based on simply they have liver disease and are encephalopathic? Yeah, I, I love that this question comes up early. I will say that I have personally witnessed full-on brawls between hepatologists who cling to the use of ammonia or who tell you you don't need to use it. But uh, since I'm the only one who's on this podcast right now, I will share with you the fact that hepatic encephalopathy is a clinical diagnosis, and I have not ever checked ammonia before starting it. Now, if you are suspecting that somebody's uh, diminished executive function, poor memory, poor sleep is caused by their hepatic encephalopathy in the clinic, the best treatment is really to see if if lactulose works. Start it and then call them back uh, in a couple weeks and ask them how they're doing. But in general, and this ties in very well to the patient whom we're discussing today, Hepatic encephalopathy is a clinical diagnosis. It can be triggered by a number of things. And in the blood, the ammonia level may or may not be, may or may not scream high. But because there are other factors which contribute to that clinical phenomenon of altered sensorium, such as the burden of inflammation or their cognitive reserve uh, because of years of alcohol use or incipient dementia, uh, the overall burden of ammonia may or may not be high. So it's clinical diagnosis. Okay, interesting. So I don't need to be chasing ammonia levels on my patients in the ICU. You know, it's super problematic because there's tons of issues with ammonia. One is that you can be obtunded with a low ammonia, although that really only happens in about 5% of cases where uh, where HE has caused a coma. And you can definitely be encephalopathic with a uh, normal ammonia, or you could be doing crossword puzzles in Sudoku with a uh, ammonia level that's off the charts. Because what's n- what you're not measuring are the other factors which enhance the toxicity of ammonia in the brain, such as uh, the burden of inflammation. For example, patients with cirrhosis are translocating bacteria all day, every day. They definitely have elevated levels of inflammation in their blood. And if this guy happened to have developed bacteremia, urinary tract infection, pneumonia while he was at home and this uh, smoldering process was brewing, then he might have an infection and a normal-ish ammonia level. Then you get into the other issues, which is that it's really hard to actually measure it. You have to draw it typically from an artery. You got to put it immediately on ice. You got to get that to the lab stat. They have to run the lab immediately before that blood just sits around on the table producing its own ammonia. You have to draw the ammonia without a tourniquet because if you uh, tie off someone's arm, you'll just start producing ammonia in the setting of, uh, 
uh, anaerobic uh, uh, met- metabolism. Okay. Well, that um, leads us into his lab studies, which you skim over in the chart. And you notice that his sodium is a little low at 132, his chloride is 94, his creatinine is 2.6, and his BUN is 60. Unfortunately, you don't have a lot of baselines for these. Most of his care is at an outside hospital. But his bilirubin is up at 6, and his INR is 1.9. His albumin is 2.0. His white count is a little elevated at 14, and his HNH is 8 and 24. Platelets of 105. You skim over his LFTs and you see an AST of 230 and an ALT of 200 with an ALKFOS of 60. Now, are you interested, because I can give it to you if you'd like, are you interested in his MELD score? Well, uh, I think the MELD score is useful when you are uh, providing a patient with a prognosis, you can calculate it and it tells you roughly what their risk of mortality in the next 90 days might be. But the MELD score here might not add anything to our discussion because it turns out that if you have a man who's coming in with basically brain failure and he also has kidney failure, then he is experiencing what we would call acute on chronic liver failure. And these organ failures increase your mortality over and above the MELD score. So the truth is, anytime I hear an INR and a bilirubin and a creatinine, I'm sort of mentally calculating roughly what that MELD score is. You know, I don't have logarithmic calculator in my head, but we know that his MELD score is going to be in the high 20s based on these uh, data, if not the uh, 30s. Uh, It tells us that this is a man who's in trouble. Uh, and you could, have tell, you could have known that primarily based on the creatinine. That's the number one thing that will drive the risk of in-hospital mortality, as well as it's the, it's the biggest contributor to the uh, MELD score. So what I, what I wonder, and I, I think I always wonder this with these patients, is it really seems like the, the role of the MELD is maybe more for outpatient use, people who have kind of equilibrated into whatever their chronic baseline is. And of course, as that gets worse, you can follow it. But in these acute admissions, it seems like it's just all over the place. It's usually very high when they first come in, and then you treat them and it gets better, and then maybe it kind of fluctuates. But it seems like that's kind of not what it's meant for, except, you know, as some marker of how sick they are. But I mean, we have other markers of acute illness as well. Yes. Yeah, I think you're 100% right. I mean, the truth is that the MELD has significant limitations, but we don't have a more powerful risk calculator in our business. And this guy came in with a super high MELD, and you might have judged his mortality to have been high without knowledge of that MELD, but the MELD doesn't lie. He was at higher risk when he rolled in the door. Uh, it is going to fluctuate. If, you, if we take good care of him, his creatinine gets better, uh, then that meld is definitely going to fall. But the fact of the matter is he ended up in your unit for a reason, and that is what's driving his short-term outcomes. Okay. Now, uh, I think as far as looking at his LFTs, a lot of us are relatively familiar with kind of comparing 
cholestatic versus more hepatocellular patterns. Um, but assuming we're in the latter realm, um, are there any real secrets to comparing the AST versus the ALT? I mean, does that tell you anything about these patients, or are they are kind of both elevated? That's kind of it. Yeah. I, I, so there's there's two things to think about here: the pattern, the AST, uh, whether the AST is greater than the ALT, and the magnitude of elevation. And so if you gave me the history that this was a man with known cirrhosis who was actively drinking, then I wouldn't be surprised if his AST was 90 or 290, uh, and I wouldn't be surprised if it was greater than the ALT. We know that in people with alcoholic liver injury uh, that the AST is going to be higher in part because the alcohol metabolism uh, actually chews up the cofactor for ALT production. That's where ALT actually requires vitamin B6, which you burn up when you're, when you're chronically abusing alcohol. And then two, when you have cirrhosis, the half-life of AST is increased, so it begins to predominate in, in the blood. So I already knew this guy had cirrhosis and alcohol-related, and, and the, 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 that magnitude within that ballpark, no surprises. Now, if his AST was 1,000, 2,000, I could not reasonably attribute that to the alcohol-related liver injury alone, and I would start to think about other things. All right, so the ED, of course, scans his head in the CT scanner, and it is unremarkable, and they also run his abdomen and pelvis, and um, that just shows ascites, hepatomegaly, mild splenomegaly. They don't give him contrast because of his kidneys, um, and they don't see a whole lot else in his solid organs. But in the ED, he is hypotensive and febrile. And when he first comes in, they say he was um, uh, sleepy but conversant, but his mental status kind of continues to get worse, and they actually end up intubating him just because they're not sure about his airway. So they sent him to the ICU in that state, and that's when you are consulted. You are in the area, and you pop in and take a look at him, and you see a relatively well-developed adult male, um, a little overweight and cachectic, meaning maybe a little high on the adipose and a little low on muscle mass. When sedation is held, he's restless, uh, but he does follow commands. A little bit of icterus. His abdomen is soft and seems to be non-tender for you. You don't really see any vessels. There's a mild pitting edema peripherally. Right now, his blood pressure is 100 over 40 with a MAP of 70. His heart rate's 110. And he's satting 95 on 40% oxygen, and he's right now afebrile. So when they call you, they're giving him a presumptive diagnosis of hepatic encephalopathy, secondary to exacerbation of his chronic cirrhosis and liver failure. Um, first of all, do you disagree with that diagnosis, or you think that's a good thing to get started with? Uh, well, you know, I don't disagree with the diagnosis, but um, it's just a small part of the picture. So just as we would never say that iron deficiency anemia is the end diagnosis, you need to have a cause for that. Uh, in this case, we are really seeing something that is a biomarker of another underlying process that has triggered hepatic encephalopathy in this man at this time. And you don't have to think too hard about it. He's coming in with a fever. He's helping us out. And so we're going to need to direct our evaluation for triggers along the infectious route expeditiously. 
I will add, however, that just because a patient with cirrhosis doesn't come in with abdominal pain or fever does not mean that they aren't that they don't have an infection, including spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. So I have to put that in early, but I would worry that this man does have hepatic encephalopathy, but he's got a more important diagnosis, which is an untreated infection. Okay, so that I, that I guess what I am wondering in a general sense there is if, I mean, we see a lot of patients in the hospital and in the ICU who are coming in with acute exacerbations of chronic organ failures, COPD exacerbations, CHF exacerbations, DKA. Um, in that kind of model, what are the reasons that these patients come in acutely? You said infection is a common one. Are there other triggers that end up pushing people over to having these attacks? And I mean, I guess from your outpatient perspective, what are the things you try to do to prevent this from happening? What's the, what is good care that avoids these admissions? Okay. So, you know, infection is going to reflect the bulk of reasons for admission for sick patients with cirrhosis in the hospital. Uh, so that's always going to be number one, two, and three. But the other thing that's important here is that he comes in with kidney injury. Now, uh, we don't know what his baseline is, but let's say for the sake of argument that he does have a new uh, kidney injury. Um, an infection could very well cause that. But in the outpatient setting, what I'm very interested in doing is making sure that I am carefully monitoring my patients with ascites who are on diuretics. Because ascites is always going to exert a drag on kidney perfusion, they, there's a, it's a really fine balance between somebody who can uh, control their ascites or ends up intravascularly dry on too many diuretics for them. So the, you know, the classic story here is that you have a guy who has ascites, who's on diuretics. I believe this man is also on lisinopril, if I heard correctly. And he, might, he may have had like a bad meal or he might have caught a, a cold and he starts eating and drinking less. And all of a sudden, he has a number of reasons why that kidney is at higher risk for uh, pre-renal injury. He's on an ACE inhibitor, less, likely, less able to uh, equilibrate. He's on diuretics, uh, less able to hold on to the volume that he needs. And so um, I think outpatient management of ascites is really about trying to stay ahead of intravascular depletion. The other thing that I, I think it's worth bringing up, and I'm not sure if you're trying to get at this, is whether we can prevent infections in patients with ascites. And I, I, I'm not sure that we can, but for the sake of uh, playing both sides here, that there are people out there for whom you can prevent spontaneous bacterial peritonitis. Namely, if you've done a paracentesis and your guy has a, a high uh, bilirubin, uh, so you know his liver's sick, and in the fluid studies tell you that they have a very low total protein. Well, one, that's very common in cirrhosis. And what those proteins reflect are that there's less uh, opsonins in the, uh, in the uh, fluid to clear bacteria that may be translocating from the gut. And so there are people out there that will use primary prophylaxis of antibiotics, things like Bactrim or ciprofloxacin, to prevent the development of a first episode. And we do have trials to support that, but they happened in the time before multidrug-resistant organisms. And I'm not sure that 
my my patients with cirrhosis benefit from those medications, although there are many people that uh, would still disagree about that. So with this patient in front of you, and I'm sure this is not an unusual consultation you might get, um, it sounds like you would like him to have a paracentesis. Yes. Um, what? Well, let me ask you first. Uh, you point that out, and then someone sticks their head in and say, well, you know, his INR is 1.9. Uh, does that interest you? No. So, uh, uh, and like, this is a fight that we will have, uh, hopefully not forever, but it's it's been going on for a long time. So this is a man who needs to have a paracentesis. There are studies which say for every hour that you delay the paracentesis and therefore the diagnosis of his spontaneous bacterial peritonitis, you are increasing the risk of death. Now, if he doesn't have SPP, fantastic. Uh, but if he does, we're going to get, we could get into trouble. Uh, uh, and it's, it's not simply safe to empirically treat SPP. You want to have a culture to go by uh, typically. And, and if you look at the whole population who's getting admitted to a hospital in the United States, it turns out that those who are getting diagnostic paracentesis are less likely to die in the hospital. So there's very few things that we do in daily practice that are all but guaranteed to save a life. And so diagnostic paracentesis is super important. Now you get to the question is, is it safe? Now, I'll, I'll just take a step back and tell you that there are guidelines which tell you it is. So my guidelines, AASLD, the Liver Society, they say, don't even look at the INR. The AGA, the Gastroenterology Association, don't look at the INR. The Society for Interventional Radiology, and, and uh, this surprises people, they released guidelines last year which said, do not even consider the INR when uh, performing a, a paracentesis because it's a low-risk procedure. So we have guidelines which say not to, do, not to worry about it. And the reason for that is that the INR is not measuring the hemostatic rebalancing that occurs in patients with cirrhosis. So at the risk of, of, uh, uh, of going off uh, on a crazy tangent about coagulation factors, I'm just going to summarize it. That INR was made for people on Coumadin. And it turns out that people with cirrhosis, they're still able to produce enough thrombin that the INR is not measuring. So that's called rebalanced hemostasis. And, and the reasons for that are that they have highly active platelets, which catalyze the production of thrombin. Two, they actually have a ton of factor eight. So factor eight's not made by the liver. It's not measured by the INR. Uh, it's made by the vascular endothelium. And in the setting of uh, inflammation and infection, you make a ton of factor eight. You know, a nice tip is that if you're worried that someone with coagulopathy could have DIC, uh, if you check a factor eight, you would know that the coagulopathy is caused by uh, liver disease if it's sky high. So they have got really high uh, factor eight, uh, and they've got normal preserved uh, thrombin generation. So it turns out that if you actually measure the right things, uh, tests that are not commercially available, uh, things like thrombin generation, or if you went ahead and did thromboelastography, you would learn that these patients tend towards clotting. And the higher their INR, the more likely they are to tend towards clotting. So with all that said, this guy needs a paracentesis. And uh, the reason why they would bleed from paracentesis is if you puncture 
a vessel. So use Doppler when you're looking. Ultrasound is your friend. So I'm, I am I had my mic muted so you couldn't hear me clapping over here, but through that whole thing, um, <laughs> I could not agree more with you about the coagulopathy. Um, you know, when I teach students about TEG, um, I tell them all the time that INR is designed to monitor coumadin levels, and we rely way too much on it for other things. So I'm just glad I'm not the only one out there. Now, is there is there any INR or any situation where you would uh, avoid a para or reverse it, or just you could not be convinced to care? Yeah, so th- we have evidence that you can safely do a paracentesis um, on therapeutic Lovenox. And uh, because it's a relatively small incision, the odds that you're going to cause clinically significant bleeding if you don't happen to tear a varix on your way into the peritoneum is super low. So, you know, I guess if if I knew a patient was in frank DIC and they had an INR that was checked and it was greater than assay, I'd certainly wonder, like, what, is, what else could be happening? And I don't think that I should be doing any invasive procedures in someone in DIC. But the average patient with an elevated INR, it could be four, is not going to bleed from your paracentesis. Okay, so if there are other coagulopathic processes, that's yeah. one thing. But if it's just because of cirrhosis, then you don't worry. Exactly. Okay. All right. Um, when... You are having this para drawn. Um, I presume you're looking at cultures and gram stains. Um, do you look at the uh, serum uh, albumin ascites gap? Is that what you're interested in? Yeah, so it's, it's generally recommended that when a patient has new ascites, you do a diagnostic paracentesis to confirm the etiology of the ascites. And the serum, ascites, uh, uh, serum albumin ascites gradient, the SAG, if it's greater than 1.1, that typically tells you that your patient's ascites is caused by portal hypertension. But there are other causes of uh, high SAG uh, for ascites, and the most common other cause would be heart failure, congestive hepatopathy. Now, obviously, you can have congestive heart failure and cirrhosis in the same patient, but when you see a total protein in the ascites that exceeds 25 then you're starting to think this person could have heart failure that's causing their ascites. So I'm not really interested in that right now. What I'm interested in is the total white count and the culture and the gram stain. So the key points here are that the diagnosis of SBP is, on the, is made on the basis of having greater than 250 polymorphonuclear neutrophils. Uh, uh, so 250 polys and... Uh, a positive culture. If you have greater than 250 polys, you've got neutrocytic ascites, and for, the, for, for all intents and purposes, that is SBP. And if you can find something on the gram stain, then you've got it made in the shade because now you can tailor the antibiotics appropriately. And if we just guess and we give them something like a third ge- generation cephalosporin, something like ceftriaxone, two grams daily, then in the kind of hospitals where we're practicing, 25% of the time, it's going to be the wrong antibiotic. Um, and then a quick tip is that when you're doing that diagnostic para, you don't send the fluid down to the lab to be cultured. You directly inoculate the culture bottles at the bedside. 
we have trials that show that that increases the yield of uh, a positive culture for our patients with SBP. Oh boy, you're going to hear some from some labs about that one. Actually, what I found is that no matter how you uh, put fluid into bottles, the lab's going to tell you that you did it wrong. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it, it's funny you bring that up. We're having that argument uh, in our outpatient uh, clinic as well. I, it, it's, uh, uh, they don't want us to transport the, uh, the large culture bottles. But there are some things that are, some things are important to do, and that's, uh, that's another set of meetings I look forward to, but it's a fight worth having. Okay, so you um, you start a little consult, no, and you recommend a paracentesis, and you um, you include an inline citation to some uh, guidelines. Um, what are the other things you think are important to get done in this patient relatively early? Yeah, so the, for this person, I'm worried about infection, so we've done that. We're going to check they, patients with cirrhosis can end up with spontaneous bacteremia, and you, you'll, you'll start chasing around looking for a source. You may or may not find it, but they definitely need blood cultures. This person needs a chest x-ray, urine, urine analysis, urine culture. And then after that, uh, we, uh, uh, we, we should probably get to work addressing their underlying condition. Uh, so treatment of infection and treatment of renal injury are going to be paramount uh, in resolving this uh, acute presentation. Okay. Um, would you give steroids? Ah. So one is that uh, you are uh, assuming that uh, this is due to alcoholic hepatitis uh, because he was, there was a report of drinking and he has an elevated bilirubin. Uh, so uh, you worry that... Um, uh, you've heard that alcoholic hepatitis is treated with steroids. So I think that that's a pretty long discussion, but uh, the short answer is no. And the reason for that is uh, he had a fever, I worried about infection, and relative contraindications to uh, steroids include renal injury. Uh, we're not going to lose any time uh, by uh, withholding steroids today, tomorrow, uh, the the small benefit of uh, steroids, if it's uh, if he, if if he doesn't start to resolve his bilirubin in the next couple of days, uh, will will still be there for us waiting. So you're not religiously against steroids, but it's kind of a slim benefit and not one that has to be given on day zero. Yeah. So if you're a steroid person, then you're you've arrived at that conclusion because one there is very little that we have to offer the treatment of alcoholic hepatitis at this time. And two, uh, you've probably got a more reasonable uh, perspective. So I'm not one way or the other, all steroids or no steroids. I, if I have chosen a candidate, if I found a candidate for steroids, this is someone who I've controlled their infection, their kidney function's getting a little bit better in front of me, and their bilirubin is climbing, uh, then I would think, Maybe I would start steroids. And if I did, then I would watch their bilirubin and INR and, I, and their albumin, and I would calculate what's called a Lille score. I actually don't know how to pronounce it. It's L-I-L-L-E. It's a town in Belgium. And what this group has shown is that you can determine whether somebody will respond to steroids after four days. So if after four or seven days, you don't see an improvement in those indicators, and you can just Google it, there's something on MDCalc for the Lille score, then you stop those steroids because that person is only going to experience a risk, infection and so forth, 
uncontrolled diabetes. But if they're benefiting from steroids at that time, then you would continue it for the 28 days. So that's what I do. I, I, I just, I, I, I try my best to find someone who's a, who could benefit from it. And then I, I'm only on the hook for four days to make sure that uh, it's actually working. Yes. So again, the key thing is that this encephalopathy is toxic. It's probably related to uh, an infection given the fever. But uh, assuming I'm doing all those things, then when I have a patient who, in this case, we would say they have grade four encephalopathy, you needed to intubate them for airway protection on the basis of their confusion. This is a person who I am giving a ton of lactulose to. So that dose that he was on, that, 30, that 20, 30 cc's TID titrate to three to four bowel movements daily, that's a maintenance dose. And what this man needs is an induction dose. And for that, for me, I usually say give a ton of lactulose, like 60 cc's every couple of hours until you have laxation or they start waking up. If this is being driven by hepatic encephalopathy, you will learn within six hours if you can treat it. If they don't wake up to lactulose, like that, dose like that, then what you're really seeing is toxic encephalopathy from infection. The other thing you got to keep in mind when you're treating encephalopathy is that one of the key ways that people eliminate ammonia is actually through the urine. And uh, so you have to uh, try to address their renal injury. And when someone has an infection, particularly SBP, uh, we want to give them fluid. And the fluid of choice for uh, hepatologists is albumin, 25%. 1.5 grams per kilogram on day one. All right, so they ramp up his lactulose. Um, he does get tapped. Um, it shows some polys. They are not able to grow any organisms, but he does eventually grow um, out E. coli in his blood. So over the next several days, he gets the usual kind of septic treatments in the ICU, and he gets somewhat better. That first night, he ends up on vasopressors because his blood pressure keeps falling, uh, but they're eventually able to wean them, and seven days later, you're continuing to follow him, and he's now down to minimal doses of pressors, although they haven't really been able to get them entirely off. He's still rather altered, and he just kind of generally had a failure to fully rebound. Um, he developed some mild DIC, uh, but he did get better. His blood culture is eventually cleared, but his liver doesn't seem like it's recovering. His INR is now 3.1, his bilirubin is up to 9.5, and his albumin is only 1. His creatinine is now 4, and his BUN is 105. He's positive about 10 liters on his fluid balance, and he's oliguric. And the primary team is kind of on the fence considering um, starting hemodialysis. What is going on at this point? What is the role of the liver in this picture? Um, and particularly, how is it affecting the kidneys? Well, so um, this is an unfortunately very common story. Um, uh, it's the kind of consult of which we had several just last week. The liver uh, is causing his problems in two ways. One is that when you have hepatic insufficiency, your 
immune system is simply less responsive. And uh, it's harder to overcome the uh, infection. And you have a more uh, aggressive inflammatory uh, process in response to that infection. So it's completely disordered. uh, And it makes these patients very sick. The other thing is that the liver is causing a mechanical disruption of blood flow from the gut back to the heart. And the result of that lesion is threefold. One, they are underfilling their heart. And the only adaptation that you really have to that is to increase catecholamines and antidiuretic hormone. Two, is that this is a patient who is uh, also going to be systemically clamped down as a function of the kidney's response to decreased delivery. They're going to have elevated levels of angiotensin, aldosterone. And so when you have all of these vasoconstricting factors in a patient who is is simultaneously distributing uh, blood in their tissues, they're unable to hold it within their uh, with, within their um, vascular tree, you end up in renal failure. Uh, this is the classic presentation of a patient who is developing hepatorenal syndrome. Uh, and uh, it's going to be complicated. You're going to spin the urine and you'll definitely find muddy brown casts. There will be a fight that breaks out between hepatologists and nephrologists as to whether or not this is ATN or HRS. And the truth is, that this guy probably wouldn't have merited entry into a clinical trial of hepatorenal syndrome because he's not the, it's not the cleanest story, but he's got multiple different things happening at the same time, and, uh, uh, th- and that's the reason why his kidneys are shutting down. Okay, so in the, you know, the intensivists and the nephrologists are in the team room um, chatting about what to do with him. You stick your head in. Do you have any input on this? Or is whatever is kind of good routine care for his kidneys going to be good for the liver? Do you care if they dialyze him? Do you care if they diarrhease him? Is it all the same to you? Yeah. So I, I guess um, my, my, uh, my, my contribution is that if you are worried about hepatorenal syndrome, then, and your patient is in the ICU, then what the treatment ought to be is in the United States at present, it would be norepinephrine. Uh, norepinephrine is an effective treatment for hepatorenal syndrome. In the United Kingdom, I would be uh, uh, advocating for terlipressin. And, and one of these days, it will be available to all of us. So that would be my really my only contribution. Now, you might be uh, using ultrasound and looking at um, the uh, how, how well the heart is filling and those central pressures. And you may actually figure that this is someone whose renal injury could be improved with diuresis. And I would defer to you on that. You might be right. In terms of dialysis, it's not going to help or, uh, or hurt him, you know, with respect to the hepatorenal physiology. But I would be there to help you figure out the benefits of dialysis. Is this man a transplant candidate? Is he likely to survive this hospitalization, hemodialysis, notwithstanding. Uh, that would be my role for this guy. Okay, so you, you suggest norepinephrine, and um, the critical care team says, well, he's on, he's on some. Uh, you know, we're titrating to a, a MAPA-65. Do you want more? I mean, what do you want us to 
target here. Yeah, so the key would be to to increase the map uh, to at least 65. And then um, uh, if you went higher and there wasn't any improvement in urine output, uh, there's definitely no uh, uh, value in increasing uh, the overall dose. So it, it, you're not going to see too many hepatologists in the United States directing uh, intensivists on the on the dose of norepinephrine. You you've found the right you're you're at the right target, and I think you're doing the right thing for this guy. So don't let them be hypotensive, but they don't necessarily. Yes, need any. Okay. exactly. Okay, um, would you still be giving albumin? Yeah, so albumin is um, a good idea to after so in, in as the dust ha, before the dust settles you're treating the infection up front you might give him albumin uh, you could give it to him for a few days the so-called albumin challenge but there's a point of diminishing returns and particularly if that renal uh, injury is not resolving if you keep giving bucket loads of albumin the only thing that you're going to achieve is pulmonary edema and so I would watch the albumin. If I got it above three, I definitely wouldn't be giving any more. But typically on the floor, if we're treating hepatorenal syndrome, we're giving about 20 grams of albumin a day with that therapy. All right, so three more days pass. And at this point, he is on dialysis. The bilirubin has continued to rise to 12.5. The INR is now 4.5. His AST is now 900, and his ALT is now 800. What do we do with this guy? <laughs> what is going on in his liver at this point, and what can we do about it, if, if anything? Yeah, so um, at this point, uh, I think there is another process that he has acquired uh, in the hospital uh, that uh, uh, explains this new acute uh, liver injury. Um, in terms of what we can do for him, it's I, I, I'm, I'm very worried about him. If I saw those labs alone, I would be worried that this is what the dying process would look like for this unfortunate gentleman. Now, when you have someone who has an acute liver injury where the ALT is spiking like that, you're going to worry about it, about at least a couple of things in the hospital. One, uh, that uh, this person is now in cardiogenic shock. That's the most important, most common cause of massively elevated liver enzymes. And this is someone who's going to have cool extremities, elevated central venous pressures, um, and uh, and obviously diuresis and, uh, and ultrafiltration would be the best treatments for him. Two, that you've given him something that he reacted to. So one of those antibiotics that we gave him has, in, has caused a drug-induced liver injury. And three, you would, you would think, did we forget to get a right upper quadrant ultrasound on admission? And if we did, we would definitely repeat that. And we'd be looking for stones. We'd be looking for biliary dilation because there's a significant chunk of people with, uh, biliary in, with um, a new acute liver injury that actually have cholecholithiasis as the cause. Uh, occasionally, in these people will do a right upper quadrant, and particularly looking at Dopplers, because someone is wondering if they have an ischemic liver now from a, a clot or something. Is that ever fruitful? You know, um, 
we, we often do um, Doppler evaluation looking for clots. Um, and you will find clots uh, in patients. Uh, a guy like this is at risk for portal vein thrombosis, but it's typically not the cause of severe acute liver injury. So it's not like a bad idea. It's just not the most common thing. In general, ischemic hepatitis can happen if you essentially clot off your whole portal vein um, or, or your hepatic artery acutely. That can definitely happen. But the most common etiology of ischemic hepatitis is, one, central congestion, which uh, uh, is it's usually a disorder of right heart failure, and then transient systemic hypotension. So like the classic uh, history is someone with heart failure, they have uh, elevated liver enzymes, mildly elevated bilirubin, and then they become orthostatic, you check their liver enzymes. What happens is that the blood pressure, the blood supply to the liver is like 70% from the portal vein. And the pressure at which it's tumbling into the liver is like 10, 20 millimeters of mercury in somebody that has portal hypertension. And so if your right-sided pressures exceed that, it's very hard to perfuse the liver from the portal vein. That patient then becomes dependent on the hepatic artery to perfuse the liver, which typically only provides about 20% of the blood flow. That arterialization of hepatic hemodynamics becomes a serious problem if your patient develops systemic hypotension. So they drop their pressures uh, when you are trying to uh, titrate the, um, the pressors. Uh, it can happen acutely like that. So when I see elevated liver injury like that, 50% of the time, I'm right every time it's a cardiogenic source. So the um, ICU team is going to have a, a meeting with the family to talk about his prognosis and things like that, and they kind of tap you first to just to get your perspective. What do you think his prognosis is looking like now, and kind of what are, are possible directions forward, if any? And in particular, the family was asking about um, liver transplants. and Would that ever be yeah. on the table in any uh, realm near this one? So um, what I would say is that this is where that initial MELD score that was really bad comes into play. You already knew that he was sick. This is where those initial organ failures comes into play. He only, it, things only got worse. So now he's on dialysis, mechanical ventilation. He has circulatory failure and brain failure, and he's becoming more jaundiced. And so by anyone's definition of acute on chronic liver failure, this man is among the sickest people in the state in which he resides at this time. So he is most likely going to die from during this admission. And we have to be upfront about that with family so that they understand we don't, we're not going to do anything uh, to prolong his suffering. Uh, it, he, we, you've supported him extremely well, and yet he has not responded. So the, the question is, can you then rescue him with a liver transplant? And you're getting into a thorny issue where what we're really doing is transplantation for alcoholic hepatitis. Now, there is no... Uh, medical reason that we sh that we can't transplant somebody who is drinking up until the day of their admission. In fact, if you select that patient well, their outcomes after transplant are just as good as anyone else's, if not better. 
So you're still talking about selection. And in this case, we need to know a little bit more about uh, you know, what his uh, caregiver support is like, how he has reacted to discussions about uh, drinking cessation in the past. And then you want to make sure that he's stable for liver transplant. And there's something really wrong about that ALT of that ALT AST of a thousand now that tells me there's another process which would make transplant super risky. So yes, there are people just like him who get transplanted during this admission without that additional history of the liver injury that you were telling me about. But they're highly selected. That's very interesting, because I think a lot of these patients, we would just assume that there's no potential avenue there. So you would want to see that he is at least a little more stable, and at least maybe we have a diagnosis for all of his acute processes. And I guess we exactly. know that it's not going to threaten the transplant. Uh, but the fact that he is um, actively drinking would not necessarily rule him out. Maybe it's not a, a good thing, but we would. Yeah. Okay. You know, so like a clean story is he was actively drinking. He, you know, lost his job. The drinking got worse. And, um, you know, maybe his family member family members were super worried about him. But he didn't really have the opportunity to engage with uh, relapse prevention and appropriate substance use disorder care beforehand. In that case, there are many centers in the United States that would strongly consider this man for liver transplant. And, you know, he might be at risk for a relapse after transplant, but uh, he'd be alive. And we have treatments for that. And if the program is willing to transplant somebody with alcohol-related hepatitis. And that is a program who is therefore responsible for helping that patient's chronic disease, the alcohol use disorder. So you can't just be transplanting people like this willy-nilly. You have to have a good uh, uh, social work and psychiatry team that works with you. You have to have a very good protocol for monitoring these people afterwards. And we're transplanting hundreds of people like this in the United States each year. Interesting. So is this very um, dependent on the local center? Some places will consider yes. this and some not so much. Exactly. I was just going to say, what, what if any, uh, role is there um, in something like a liver dialysis, like a Mars system um, in a guy like this? Is it something that could buy you some time if he gets very sick and you don't have a... Tr- transplantable organ immediately available or if you're still trying to decide if this is a guy who's going to qualify is there a role for that in this you know that's a that's a very very good question so mars which is a kind of a wild technique right it's hepatoblastoma cells from a kid that have been cultured and they put them into dialysis like dialysis filters dialysis style filters and you filter the blood to clear out the things that their dysfunctional liver uh, cannot. And uh, there is a lot of promise and a lot of excitement around liver dialysis. There was a trial that enrolled patients just like this, uh, and it was negative. So they were steroid steroid non-responders who went on uh, liver dialysis. And the company had hoped that they would convince the audience at the annual liver meeting that if you look at the subgroup of young people who didn't have renal failure when they came in, that there was a signal of benefit. But that's just one small subgroup. 
So even in that company's wildest dreams, this is not a man that would have done well on uh, the uh, uh, on the Mars uh, system. So it's an idea that people are continuing to work on, and uh, but I haven't seen any promise in it clinically yet. All right, I think we can probably leave this gentleman alone where he is. I guess I'll leave it in the air about what happens to him. Um, Brian, any other uh, thoughts or questions you think about this case? No, I um, no. I think this has been a really great talk. Uh, this is something I don't I don't do a whole lot with. I, I see a lot of liver patients uh, after transplant in the surgical ICU, but not a lot of um, pre-transplant disease. So this has been really good. All right, now, Dr. Tapper, um, any final thoughts on this? What do you want us to take away about the management of these patients? If there's one thing we can remember. Okay. So I would like to make two quick points. One is that you are never wrong to suspect an infection. And the best tools that we have uh, to keep these people alive is infection treatment. If you look at the outcomes of alcoholic hepatitis over time, the mortality rate has declined from roughly 50% when the Willis-Madre was treating people with prednisone to about 23% in most recent trials. And that's because of the supportive care that they get from the intensive care from people just like you. And the other point I want to make is that at the end of life, there's a lot that we can do to keep people comfortable. And this can be a very uh, challenging time for everybody involved. And sometimes it can feel like it always ends up this way. But for every story like this, there are people who survive their episode of alcoholic hepatitis. And I continue to follow these people in clinic who, in the setting of sobriety, have normalized their INR, they've normalized their bilirubin, they've left hospice, and are at home doing woodworking in their garage. So uh, this is not a hopeless condition. Awesome. All right. Well, thank you so much. This has been absolutely fascinating. I appreciate your time, and we'll try to uh, apply some of these things in the ICU. Thank you for having me. Thank you.